0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com.
2: Once again, it's Thursday, 1 o'clock, and you have tuned in to org. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are talking oysters. We are on the line with John Lowell of East Dennis Oyster Farm. John, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Aaron. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Good to have you on. So, um, you know, I'm... Uh, a, I'm a, I'm a Midwest girl, so in, in many ways, shellfish and oysters uh, were totally foreign to me when I moved to, to New York City back in 2005, and I, I was lucky enough uh, when I was cooking on the fish line at Gramercy Tavern to be located very near the oyster station, and that's really where the bulk of my oyster uh, eating experience comes from. I got, I got to stand and kind of self-shuck and slurp, and I hope Mike Anthony isn't listening and knowing that I ate... Um, a lot of oysters during my my tenure there. And I'm just curious, you and your wife, Stephanie, have been running the oyster farm since 2003 um, up there in Cape Cod. How did you guys get, get started in the oyster business?
3: Well, that's a, that's a good question. We were commercially shellfishing for a number of years, and uh, these shellfish grants, and by grant I mean a land grant, not a money grant, these shellfish grants uh, became available, and we decided uh, for all the wrong reasons that we would like to to get one and they were they were just sitting there and nobody really wanted them and so we we got a grant we 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 got going and uh... one thing led to another and we we started doing oysters and it turned out to be a very natural fit for us because we we really love it and uh... it's uh... it's it's, it's a lot of fun and- and, so, uh, and now those shellfish grants, those very same ones, are a hotly contested and sought-after commodity with a 50-person waiting list. Can you imagine?
2: <laughs> guess so you came in at the right time. Now, when you say a shellfish grant, are you talking about uh, somebody giving you money for something or a piece of property? What What does that mean exactly?
3: A, shelter, a shellfish grant is will be, in our case, one acre in Dennis. It's a one-acre uh, deeded uh, area that's deeded to my wife and I, and uh, we have exclusive rights to farm it. And a shellfish grant can only be established in a non-productive area. In other words, you can't take a productive clam flat and say all of a sudden, well, this is mine, and I have exclusive rights to it. Uh, so we took essentially what is a desert, a sand flat, and uh, we planted oysters on it, and they seem to be doing very well out there.
2: Cool. Well, congratulations. So that's what I wanted to talk about on the show today. You know, I is is kind of how do you how do you start a, an oyster farm? What does that look like? So you guys ha, uh, had identified and, and sought after this this one acre piece of um, land. I mean, land. I guess it's under it's underwater. So I mean, how how far underwater, and how do you access it? I mean, maybe can you just paint us a, a visual picture a little bit about.
3: That's a great question, Aaron. Uh, first of all, I want to say that this aquaculture zone where we're at, it has 32 one-acre grants, and I have one, and my wife Stephanie has one. Uh, it was pre-established by the town of Dennis as a, uh, aquaculture area. So we didn't select the, uh, the area per se. We took one of the available areas that had been set aside. And, uh, to, to, uh, also, we are what's known as intertidal, which means when the tide goes out, We are dry. And when the tide's in, of course, we're under, we're underwater. And in our particular instance, we have anywhere from a three to four meter tide. So when the tide goes out, we drive out in pickup trucks. As a matter of fact, we're going to be heading out there after the interview because low tide is mid-afternoon today. Uh, and the tide advances 50 minutes every day. So we'll, we'll go today at three o'clock, tomorrow at four, the next day at five, and then the clock resets and you go first thing in the morning. But we're, we're high intertidal. And uh, we have no use for boats.
2: Okay, so uh, you can just we, drive like your a, trucks right out.
3: We drive the trucks right out. And I can tell you, Aaron, that you never want to buy a used truck from me or another oyster farmer because we're driving them in the salt water every day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and are are your um, Sea Grants, are they adjacent? or?
3: They are, they are adjacent, and they're separated by a 50-foot buffer zone. And the 50-foot buffer zone is so that we're not right up against each other because... Uh, when shell fishermen are working out by themselves, they're with the group that they get along with best, which is nobody. So the 50-foot buffer zone gives us some elbow room and, and keeps everybody separated, and uh, it's, it's, really, it's really good.
2: So you you guys um, received these received these like kind of grants to the actual land to do the oyster farming on, and then what's the next step? I mean, how does one start an oyster farm? Can you tell us a little bit about the equipment and and where you actually uh, get the? I, I don't know what the word is seedling oysters or, or the starters but, to kind of grow. But,
3: but we'll talk about the oyster seeds. We call them seeds, and they're little tiny oysters. They're. And they come from a hatchery, and the hatchery is a whole other facet of this business. It's a very sophisticated operation. And so, so we won't talk about the hatchery right now, but we'll talk about the seed oysters that we get. We get them from an approved hatchery, which means, and it's approved by the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. And what that means is that the oysters have passed the pathology, which means that they are not bringing in an oyster disease to our specific area. And an oyster disease. Would infect the other oysters, but it would not uh, affect the human consumer. So they have to be given a clean bill of health, and then so we bring those in, and then we select from different hatcheries. Uh, we use Fisher's Island Oyster Farm, and then we use our own local uh, Aquacultural Research Corporation. Two different hatcheries. Uh, it's not as simple as just ordering seedlings and getting them, because it is farming, not manufacturing, and so uh, the the seed stock can collapse. And so you really kind of have to hedge your bets. You don't just order order seeds and receive them. We order from two different hatcheries in order to hedge our bets, and as well as the different hatcheries are breeding uh, different brood stock for different characteristics. So even though all the oysters are Crassostrea virginica, the American oyster or Eastern oyster that we're receiving, they grow into very different-looking adults because the, the breeders are selecting different characteristics. So it's nice to have the two different types of seedlings.
2: Okay. So, and and am I understanding you correctly? You, you know, you talk about hedging your bets, and, and that's... basically you want to make sure that you have a consistent supply so that should something happen at one of the hatcheries you have uh, kind of an in at the other hatchery is that what you mean or what what could go wrong in that
3: that's that's, that's exactly what I mean we like to spread it around a little bit so you're going to be assured of getting some seed because when the going gets tough and the demand if one hatchery collapses and the demand uh, increases on the other the existing customers are going to get serviced first so you try to keep as many relationships good relationships with the hatcheries as as possible and of course being a fast pay is a great way to keep a good relationship with any business person
2: yeah yeah i i, I can echo that um so when you're ordering the seedlings um can you can you tell us what is the uh quantity or volume like how do you people talk about them um what, what's a well, batch and, and how big are usually, they usually well, we get
3: uh three to four-millimeter seeds, about as big as your little pinky or fingernail or smaller. Uh, And then we usually order them them in tens of thousands. Now, what's really interesting about this is I'll get 100,000 oysters, just say, for example, in uh, something that looks like a shoebox. And what they'll do at the hatchery is they'll take a scoop like the size of a shot glass, and they'll scoop one scoop, and they'll count, say, 1,000 oysters in that one scoop and then they don't count the rest they just give us 100 scoops or they'll they'll use it, do it by water displacement so even though you order 100,000 oysters you really have no idea how many you're getting although we estimate that we always get at least what we're paying for there's there's really no way to know how many you're getting we we actually have no way of knowing how many oysters we actually have in our operation
2: if you wanted to give us kind of a range to go from, I mean, for the two-acre plots that you guys are farming of, what is the yeah. volume of production there?
3: Well, we've got somewhere between five and 750,000 oysters out there at any given time, and we're not even coming close to our coverage. And what's interesting in the, with the oyster business is if you need more land, just like in New York City, what do you do? You go up. We can put another layer of gear on top of our existing gear, so you can you can go up spatially and get more more space that way if you need it.
2: Okay, so and What? You go what, ahead. what? Well, what is that gear? So, I mean, you come back to your your one acre plot. You've got your shoebox full of oyster seedlings, and and where where do you put them? Where Where does it go from there?
3: Well, I put them in a in a in a mesh bag, and a mesh bag is about eighteen inches by about three feet. And the idea with the mesh bag is you put. You try to get the oysters in there so you get as much flow as possible. So you want the holes as big as possible to allow water flow. And we'll, we'll talk about the food in a moment. But you want water flow, but you don't want the oysters to fall out the side of the bag. So we'll start out with about 7,500 oysters in a in a small mesh bag. And if any of your listeners remember Jiffy Pop, they, they swell up and they'll start to fill the bag. So you'll need to 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 split them in half. So 75 oysters in... One bag becomes seventy five, in two bags, and then four bags, and it grows exponentially. Okay. And, and so you need quite a bit of gear. You start out, starts out, looks very unimpressive, but they'll really, a uh, hundred thousand oysters will really spread out. So you need a lot of gear, and then you need a lot of different gear types, bigger holes. Okay. And then, and then of course, you know, best management practices. Anything, we are USDA farmers, and anything that applies to farming applies to us. And and I, I can't emphasize best management practices enough that if it, if it gets ahead of you, it's really, really hard to get it back. In other words, if, you're, if, you're, if your crop gets fouled or, or runs into difficulty due to mismanagement, it's really difficult to, to bring it back in line. So it's always good to, to stay ahead of it.
2: And, and staying ahead of it, I mean, how operationally, what does that look like? I mean, I'm assuming that it means you're, you're going out there and taking a look at what's happening every day and, and making adjustments as, as necessary, but is it more than that?
3: It's, keeping, it's really all about densities. You want to keep your densities down in the gear. You want the oysters to be able to move freely in the flow of water inside the equipment so that they'll, they'll stay nice and clean and they have plenty of room to grow. Uh, in my case, my wife and I run the farm. We don't have any employees, which is a wonderful thing, and it's just the two of us. In the dairy business in New England, they tell you it's the 51st cow that'll kill you. Well, with us, it's all economies of scale. We can grow a certain number of oysters and grow it well. And if we go over that number of oysters, then we'll have to, we'll have to hire people and we'll end up working harder and probably making the same amount of money. So we we keep it to a, a, a particular scale and, and try to do it well.
2: Okay, try that, to, that makes try sense. To grow a,
3: we want to grow a premium oyster.
2: So these um, kind of mesh bags, I mean, how are they um, uh, held in place?
3: Well, we use equipment. You have to understand that every oyster farmer has different techniques and uses different types of gear. And then we also will use the same type of gear, but we'll use it in different ways. And also the gear works differently whether you're intertidal like we are, wet and dry, or you're subtidal like a lot of other folks are, which is wet all the time. So in our particular instance, we use one-inch PVC conduits, the gray pipe, and we pound those into the sand. And then we have plastic trays that we get from Australia called aqua trays, that would look just like a bread tray. For anybody who's ever worked in a restaurant, it looks just like a bread tray. And we put oysters in those, and then we attach the bags to the top of that rig. So it, it, that's, that's the way we like to do it. And it works really well. So it's basically, they're, they're pounded into the sand, and it's the adhesion of the pipe in the sand that holds it down.
2: And what, what is the time frame, I mean, from the kind of pinky nail-sized oyster seedling to an oyster that I would be served in? I mean, you guys sell to a couple of restaurants down in the city here, so if I'm at Oceana or Marea or, or Momofuco, how, how old are those oysters? Um, I mean, how long did they take to grow, I guess, not whole?
3: It takes us about three years to grow an oyster. And that being said, in order to sell an oyster in Massachusetts, it must be three inches long, and that's the only criteria. But that doesn't really work for us. We're looking for an oyster that's uh, heavy for its size. It's dense. It's got a firm meat and a hard shell. And those three restaurants you mentioned, Oceana, Morea and Momofuku Ma they are they're, Those those chefs are very demanding, and so it takes us longer. We'll have an oyster that's market ready, but we will uh, manipulate it by moving it, uh, moving it up high, higher. So it's out of the water longer and out in the air longer. We'll manipulate them and try to slow them down in order to get a a much higher quality product. Because we really want to be, we're really interested in growing a a quality product. People will tell us, well, you know, if you can sell an oyster for a dollar, if you grow two million oysters, it's two million dollars. And we try to explain to them that more isn't better, that quality is better. And some people understand that and some people don't. I'm sure you do.
2: Yeah, well, and I'm, you know, of course, there's a market for things at both ends. I am shocked. Three, three years. Um, so how, I mean, how did you guys survive those first three years when you were, were growing oysters but not really having any product to bring to market?
3: Uh, well, there's a bunch of different ways. Uh, when you live on Cape Cod and you're farming, you know, you don't just have one occupation. We were, we, were, we had a few other things going, but it's, uh, it's difficult. It takes a lot of fortitude. To put forty or fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment out in the sea and drive home every day, and then uh, be going deeper into debt when people are telling you it'll never work, and you're working and you're going into debt, and then you're working and you're coming out of debt. So it's it takes it's not for everybody. You know you got to be an optimist. So it took a little while to turn it around, but it's it's like a vineyard. It's just it's like uh, like grapes. You don't you don't plant a vineyard and have wine the next day. And it's the same thing with oysters. You know, you don't just make more. You need to be patient. You have to really want to do it.
2: Wow. Well, we are going to uh, take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about what these oysters are are eating out there on your uh, one-acre plot. So hang tight. Uh, We'll be back shortly. You got it. Okay.
4: red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high
0: quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years.
4: A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information please visit our website.
2: All right, we are back. You are tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with John Lowell of East Dennis Oyster Farm talking about farming oysters. So, John, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Kind of what oysters um, need to kind of keep them growing. I mean, we talked about the space and the size and, and the time frame, um, but are you uh, like a fish farmer feeding the oysters, or or how do they get the nutrients to to support their growth?
3: Well, that's a great question, Erin, and I'm glad you asked it. Let's. I'm gonna we'll talk about greenness and sustainability, and then I'll, and I can work right into and explain that to you. Uh, we are a very green and sustainable operation probably one of the one of the most green and sustainable operations that there is because we're buying seed oysters from a hatchery and we're growing them out naturally in the environment uh we're not using fertilizers we're not using pesticides we're not feeding them and if we're good stewards of the land and i believe we are we're not driving Fox out there that are uh, leaking oil into the water we're not leaving plastic debris behind because quite frankly it's a privilege for us to be out there in that beautiful environment and we treat it as that so it, it's a net gain but uh, each adult oyster uh, filter feeds phytoplankton from the water and phytoplankton uh, is fed by uh, in, in some instances uh, nitrogen runoff from the land road runoff, fertilizer runoff, causes this algae, this phytoplankton, to increase. So each adult oyster filters 50, 50 gallons of water a day. They pump it in and out and run it over their gills, and they're devouring this phytoplankton. They're, they're quite voracious feeders. So if we have a million adult oysters out there in our aquaculture zone between myself and the other growers, and we probably have the equivalent of, ten times that, but for argument's sake, if we have a million adult oysters, we are filtering 50 million gallons of seawater every day, and that is significant, although the ocean is big, that is still a significant amount of water, as well as we're fixing uh, carbon in the shells, so as they're filter feeding their phytoplankton, they're helping the environment.
2: So I, I'm curious about that. I mean, you know, oysters, I think, it, in the world of aquaculture, have a reputation of being uh, a very sustainable, a very green production model. Um, and, and is there such a thing as, like, a bad uh, o- oyster aquaculture? I mean, can you give us an example of, like, w- would it ever compare to some of the, fi- the fish farms that we've heard about that are just kind of putting out... Kind of tons of waste and corrupting the natural environment. Is that kind of off the table for oysters?
3: Well, nothing's off the table when you're dealing with humans and greed. So uh, they will, people will go out there and have an unsuccessful operation because it takes quite a little bit of work and it's a wet, miserable, cold environment some days. And if you didn't love it, and I do, it'd be the world's worst job. So some of these folks, these men and women, get into it strictly. For the profits, and uh, there's way easier ways to make money, and so what they'll do is they will abandon their equipment, rebar, plastic bags, zip ties, and they'll uh, abandon their debris out there and, and make a big mess, and give, it gives us all uh, a bad name. So uh, that is, that's one way to be uh, an a irresponsible oyster farmer.
2: Okay, and so. The because the oysters are essentially filtering the water, and, and I know kind of from from eating oysters that they're they're often talked about as having this real expression of of terroir or, or miroir. Um, what are how do you deal with safety concerns with regard to the the quality of the water as that's kind of providing not only the space where the oysters are growing but their entire food supply?
3: Well, in our particular, uh, instance, we're in Cape Cod Bay, so our water is changed 100% twice a day. So we're not crammed up some estuary someplace. We're, we're, we get a huge, uh, flush of water. Plus, uh, we are governed by the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries that is responsible for checking the water safety, red tide, and things like that, and, and would issue, uh, an immediate shutdown. As well as a lot of the bigger suppliers and, uh, we're a little supplier. We do uh, testing to test our animals in during the summertime periodically. We're also the tight, most tightly regulated food uh, that there is. Forget soft cheeses and and uh, chickens. We're very, very tightly regulated by the, the feds, the FDA, and the Mass Department of Public Health, as well as uh, the, the various state agencies uh, across the country. And our, our regulations are very, very tight. And we are recording, we have to be able to retrieve every oyster we've sold for the last 90 days. Our recording and our oversight is, uh, is very, very tight. Now that being said, we generate the records. So you've got to really believe that I am conscious, conscientious and credible. And there are a lot of men and women in this business that are conscientious and credible in the, in, in the shellfish business. And those are the people that you really want to be dealing with because it's in our best interest to serve you a safe, verifiable product.
2: Yeah, no, I remember, you know, when I was working in restaurants, when we get a bag of oysters, and they always came with uh, a tag that we had to keep. Um, And I I think that goes back to the records you were speaking about, that should something happen, there's a real kind of traceability line with oysters that exist um, in ways that it doesn't exist for most food products. And I, I'm just curious that uh, the burden of that record keeping and that that paperwork. I mean, how do you, how does that kind of fit into your day to day operations, and and how do you um, kind of manage that aspect of the business? Well,
3: it's really easy for us because we're handling one item. We're handling our own oysters from our own area. The the uh, seacoast in all the eastern states is divided into little tiny quadrants. With our particular one being CCB Cape Cod Bay 23, and our our oysters harvested from our area during a certain day becomes a lot. And I can't take oysters from another area, say Wellfleet, and mix them with mine from the same day. I can't take oysters that I harvested yesterday and mix them with oysters that I harvested today. We have to keep our lots separate at all times. And so if you get out to a restaurant uh, anywhere across the United States and ask them where did those, oysters, steamers, hard shell clams, mussels, or scallops come from, uh, they have to be able to tell you, because as you know, the tag is required to be attached to the container of oysters or shellfish till it's empty. And they might tell you that it's BD21, and you would have to know it's Buzzards Bay 21, but they have to be able to tell you when they were harvested and where. And if the restaurant can't provide you with that information right away, uh, that would be cause for concern.
2: Okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the seasonality of oyster production? I mean, uh, there's the adage that you should only you know, eat oysters in months that have an R in them, and I'm wondering if that holds true for your production and if that varies at all based on um, you know, where you're located in the country.
3: Well, oysters in our particular instance only grow from early April until uh, early November because the water is above 45 degrees and there's phytoplankton available, and after that point, the oysters will shut down and go dormant. Uh As far as the months with our that 's not so much that doesn 't really apply to us that much because uh generally that 's about the warmer water and potential pathogen growth, but in our case the co the warmer the summer time the oysters are spawning they 're putting all their energy into reproducing, so they get kind of weak and they get kind of watery and they 're not nearly as good as they are during the winter time i mean they 're still wonderful but in 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 the winter time they're they 're way better beginning. In September or late August, the oysters will be done spawning and they will start to produce and store glycogen, which is glucose, which is a sugar that acts like an antifreeze for them through the wintertime, through their dormant period, and also uh, gives them the energy they need to last through the winter. And so around Thanksgiving and Christmas, the oysters are plump and sweet and just awesome.
2: And you're able to harvest year-round? We go year-round. Yes, we do. And can you tell me a little bit, like, what is the difference between uh, a wild oyster and a, and a farmed oyster?
3: Well, a wild oyster, if it grew in the environment right next to our stuff, would have an identical flavor. I think it all has to do with consistency of the shell and uh, and a lot to do with the eye appeal of the product. Uh, the wild oysters are going to tend to be a very irregular uh, a very very irregular lot where we try to send a very regular lot very interesting that we have chefs that will tell us they want a certain size oyster in a certain shape and they'll tell us only send us that particular oyster because we have a number of different size and shaped oysters as I'm sure you can imagine and we'll have another equally qualified chef that will tell us Don't ever send me that oyster. I only want the other one. So, if you can identify what you want, we can hand select it for you and only send you that particular one.
2: Okay. And so, what can you tell us, like what some of those characteristics might be with regards to, you know, size or measurement, or or how how do you sort and you sort each oyster each oyster by hand? Is that
3: we've we've touched it eighteen times by the time uh, by the time we send it. New York City wants a an oyster that's just a little bit over three inches long with a hard shell and a deep cup. and they want a, what we, That's what we consider a cocktail oyster in our particular application. And then Dallas, Texas, as you can imagine, wants a bigger oyster. So we send them about a four-inch <laughs> oyster. And so it, each chef is different, and then each marketplace is a little bit different.
2: And you guys sell uh, across the country? I mean, you're, it's, it's like you're able to move across state lines, or is that? I mean, obviously uh, have, you are, but uh, how does that work?
3: we have an interstate license it's uh there's only 19 farmers out of 300 and something in the commonwealth of mass that, that have that license that we are subject to an incredible amount of uh oversight because we have that interstate license we get a lot of inspections that the other guys don't get but it's just another layer of protection for the consumer so you really want to you know you're looking for the guys with the, with the highest the, the highest level of license we uh, we ship to new york and dallas We do a lot of uh, individual shipping. We we love shipping oysters to individual clients all over the country. Uh, It's it's cheapest to ship on the ground in the Northeast, but we do we ship everywhere.
2: And uh, can you talk a little bit about how how the oysters are treated? In transport, I mean, I know when you serve them in a restaurant, they're always on a bed of ice, and or we would store them on top of ice. But what are what are the handling practices from you know when you pull that oyster off your lot and it's making its way to to different parts of the country or down here to the city?
3: Well, in the, in the summertime, we we take them right off. We drive out to the to the grants with the biggest cooler you've ever seen in the back of the truck with ice in it, and we immediately begin cooling and shading out on the grants this time of year. We'll bring them home, and it's about probably three and a half to four hours from the tidal exposure to the time to get into my walk-in. And my walk-in runs at 31 degrees, and it only holds oysters. And there's never anything else in it. We get them down to 31 degrees, and it goes quickly because we're a small volume operation. And then we pack them in some really nice styrofoam boxes with gel packs, and we FedEx them. And so it's really cool because the chef in in New York knows when we've generated a, a tag and can track that shipment all the way along on his smartphone and knows when it's at the back door of the restaurant. So we're, we are, the farmer is packing the box and the chef is opening the box and there's not a lot of, not, there's not a lot of, uh, room for mishandling. And I can assure you, if you've worked in New York City restaurants, those chefs, their standards are incredibly high. And if there's a problem with that product in transit, I will be the first one to know about it. Would you? Would you say that's an accurate statement?
2: Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And and what is the? I mean, what is the uh, kind of quote unquote shelf life of an oyster once it's been pulled out of the water? How long do we well, have?
3: We're very uniquely poised because we're farmers and dealers. And as a as a farmer dealer, whatever I didn't sell today, I take it back and put it back on the farm. So I'm never inclined to rotate yesterday's oyster back out. Now that being said. We feel that an oyster is good, and I'm just telling you this. Uh, I'm not a scientist uh, or a biologist, but we feel two weeks is not a problem. And anything over that, I, it would be iffy. Now, oysters have a long shelf life, and they'll live in a walk-in for an extended period. That's why we like to send our restaurants small amounts more often, because they are high food cost and some unscrupulous restaurants will, may hold on to them longer than they should. That's another reason to always ask for tags. We figured two weeks. One more interesting thing about that is when I go on vacation, I'll pack them in a cooler of ice and I'll take them on a tour of New England. And when I, during the, the week, we feel the oysters absorb some of the liquid and actually kind of pick up a calcium flavor from the shell. So we feel over four or five days, if properly handled, they actually improve in flavor. But it's difficult for me to tell you that the week old one is better than the one I just harvested. Sure. So, yeah. Know. You'll have to decide that for yourself. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of little nuances. Oysters are a really cool food, and yeah. if you're an oyster farmer, you know they they open up a lot of doors for you.
2: Um, so, yeah. can you tell us? Um, we're we're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you a chance to um, kind of share with the listeners when they open up uh, a, an oyster from the East Dennis Oyster Farm. You know, what are the characteristics of your oysters, and, and how did, how are they positioned, like in comparison with other oysters we might see on a list somewhere
3: well we won the Cape Cod Oyster Festival based on on flavor and we beat up on the other on the other folks pretty badly so we know we have a really good oyster and uh, people will tell me it's a great oyster but they're gonna tell me that anyway so I only know you like it when you come back and get more but it's a it's a briny sweet just a uh, wonderful a wonderful flavored oyster
2: lovely well Thank you so much, John, for joining us today. Um, If you want to get a taste of some of uh, John and Stephanie, his wife's oysters, you can uh, check them out at Oceana, Morea, or Momofuku Ma or you can visit their website and order direct, www.dennisoysters.com. That is it for the Farm Report today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, As always, all of our programs are available as a free download through iTunes and also available on Stitcher Smart Radio. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a nonprofit organization. We hope if you like what you hear, you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member. You can do that by visiting our website and clicking the donate link. Uh, stay tuned for next week. We'll bring you another episode of the Farm Report. Thanks for listening.
1: Hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update.
2: All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Grow NYC Green Market Update. We are on the line today with Jean Hodish from Green Market. Jean, welcome. How's it going? Good. How are you? Awesome. Great. So I am excited to hear uh, the update from the market. We got some exotic stuff on the lineup. What's uh, what's new? What's uh, What should we be looking for this week?
4: Well, I was out looking around this last week and was uh, thrilled and kind of stunned to see things like peanuts and ginger and persimmons in our market. Um I think there have been a couple of different farmers in our program who have tried growing peanuts in the past, and usually there's not a huge crop, but right now Lonnie's Farm has some, and they're at Carroll Gardens on Sundays, Union Square Mondays, Tribeca Saturdays, Tag sold by the UN Wednesdays, Columbia Thursdays, so they're kind of all over the city, and... Um, they have really great specialized greens, and they still have a couple lingering tomatoes. And if you look closely, you might just find some peanuts, which is a really fun ingredient to try. And they also have ginger, which is... um pretty much would probably go really well in a stir fry with a lot of the things that you would find on their stand. So that's exciting. And then Keith's Farm, which is at Union Square on Wednesdays and Saturdays, um, they're really well known for their garlic and they also have beautiful organic produce. Um, And they had a few, I saw a little plate of persimmons and there was a kind note that said, please just take two per customer. So it's really a novelty item. But um, I picked up two for my boss because he was very excited when we heard there were persimmons in the market. And then as I was walking around, I saw this crazy, gnarly looking root. And I thought, this looks, it almost looked like potatoes all attached to the vine, just pulled straight out from the ground. It wasn't potatoes at all. It was something called the coba. And it's actually the root of a dahlia flower. And so it's all these gnarly bulbs, and apparently you can kind of slice them thin, and they have a really floral flavor. So those were at Gorzinski Ornery Farm, which is in Union Square on Saturdays. And then another item that I'm very excited about is jicama, which I'm not super familiar with, being someone who grew up, you know, in the Northeast. But um, it is available from El Poblano Farm, which is at Socrates Sculpture Park Green Market on Saturdays. And Parkchester in the Bronx on Fridays. And jicama is, I've had it like in salads with watermelon and then kind of crushed red pepper on it. It's really delicious. It's um, sort of a traditional Mexican sweet food. So my coworker was telling me that traditionally this is something that would be put in pinatas. And then you crack the pinata open and the jicama would come out. <laughs> so um, there's a great thing to look for.
2: Wow. So, I just want to clarify for listeners who may not be aware. One of the most uh, interesting and, and special things I think about the Grow NYC Green Markets is that you know all food has to come from a, a distinct region, and it all has to be um, from from a particular farm. And maybe you can just give us the overtones of what it takes to be a producer at Green Market and why it's so interesting to see some of these these new items there.
4: Sure. So uh, it's a producer-only market, which means that the growers who are selling in the market necessarily had to um, grow what they bring for sale, so they can't pick up Something that they didn't grow themselves and, and sell it in the market. So that means that what you're seeing in the market are farmers' farm within about a 200-mile radius of the city. And uh, that means that you're dealing with the northeast growing climate. But people get very inventive, and they have high tunnels. Some people have greenhouses. Or some people are just, you know, for instance, the farmer from El Poblano Farm, he comes from Mexico, and so he wanted to see if he could grow jicama here, and it turns out he can so um, when you start to see these new varieties or new types of produce in the markets, um, I always think it's really exciting because it means the farmers really thinking about what he can offer his customers that they might not have found in the green market before. So something like ginger, I mean, you can get it at bodegas and grocery stores all over the city, but it, it wasn't grown locally. And uh, it's very exciting when I'm able to find that in the green market. And I know that when I purchase it there, the money is going right back to the farmer who grew it.
2: Yeah, I I think that's great. I mean, it's nice. Essentially, by shopping at the green markets, you're letting someone else do the work of of sourcing everything local. All you have to do is show up and and fill your market bag. And I guess there's probably a few other things we should be thinking about putting in that bag. And I'm wondering if uh, there's anything else uh, out there that you might want to point us in the direction of.
4: Absolutely. Um, I've been thinking lately about sweet potatoes, which is something that I like to eat when it starts to get chilly. There are some fun varieties that I've seen around that are sort of straying from your traditional orange on the outside, orange in the middle sweet potatoes. Um, I've seen Hawaiian sweet potatoes, which are kind of brown on the outside, and if you crack them open, they are bright purple. Um, so those are delicious and fun. I was looking on the Internet earlier, and someone even made a purple sweet potato pie. So <laughs> I'm sure there are kids that might like to do something like that as sort of a cooking activity. Uh, and then there are also Japanese sweet potatoes, which are purple on the outside and white on the inside. And then, of course, there are kind of your uh, regular, more traditional orange sweet potatoes, which are great for roasting or making pies, mashing, um, making sweet potato chips, sweet potato fries. So I think they're just a terrific fall food. And then another thing that I'm always excited to see when it when it comes in is Romanesco, which is my hands-down favorite of the Brassica family. We also have lots of cauliflower from, you know, there's sort of traditional white cauliflower, but then there's also a purple cauliflower and... Um, They call it cheddar cauliflower, even. It's orange, but it doesn't taste like cheddar cheese. It tastes like cauliflower. (laughs) So those are in as well. But um, Romanesco is the one that's kind of conical and lime green and has these crazy, very sort of pointed florets. And I had an old roommate who sort of taught me how to cook it, and she just mashed up a bunch of butter with garlic and anchovies in a saute pan and then put all of the florets in, and it was an awesome, awesome fall dish.
2: And one of the other things, a couple of weeks ago you had mentioned that scallops were uh, about to come in, and, and I see that they're at the market now, so where should we, where should we be looking for them?
4: Um, well, scallops have a different season. I think I was talking about bay scallops. Oh, bay scallops, yes. The, the smaller ones. So their season opens at the first Monday in November, so you'll see them in about another week. Um, so, and I think all of our fishmongers at the different markets around the city end up having them, and they're just tiny and sweet and delicious. But I was checking in with Stephanie Villani of Blue Moon Fish um, just yesterday and asking her, you know, what's really good right now. And she said, you know what, the swordfish and the tuna are fatty and really delicious right now, and they won't be around for so much longer because soon they'll start to swim south. So I picked up swordfish from her and ate it for dinner last night. It was amazing. Um, but Blue Moon also sells smoked fish, and they had smoked tuna, which is also really, really delicious. Um, So definitely worth checking out. And Blue Moon is at Union Square on Wednesdays, Tribeca Saturdays, Grand Army Plaza on Saturdays. Um, They're going to have cod soon, which is great in fish chowder. Uh, And then the other good fall fishes she was telling me about are blackfish and monk, which um, are just really nice. And, you know, it's an alternative to root vegetables and it's an alternative to meat. And the dish I made last night was just fantastic. Um, And then the other the other seafood item, our director, Michael, has been going crazy for blowfish tails, which he's been getting from American Seafood. Um, They sell at the market in his neighborhood, which is Jackson Heights, but they're at a number of our markets around the city. And Michael was telling me he cooks the blowfish tails, he treats them just like chicken wings, and he'll kind of bread them and fry them or bake them, and then you can just kind of eat the meat right off the bone, and he can't speak highly enough. So look around for blowfish tails.
2: Well, so lots of updates today that are on the unexpected side. Peanuts, ginger, Japanese sweet potatoes, in addition to blowfish tails and jicama. I mean, really uh, such a bounty to be had at the market and it's so exciting to get out and try some new stuff. Um, I know you guys always have tons of events and whatnot going on. Is there anything in particular you wanted to highlight that we should be on the lookout for this weekend?
4: Sure. Um, so there are still some apple pie cook-offs happening. There's going to be one at the St. George Green Market on Staten Island next weekend. Um, and then soon enough, uh, I've already seen some farmers have put out their signs for um, turkeys. So if you want to get a turkey from your farmer, um, You want to sign up in advance because usually they they ask for people to place orders for those turkeys in advance of the holiday. And then um, pretty soon in November, we're going to have Thanksgiving recipe packets that we'll have at all of our markets. Um, There are lots of Halloween events still happening this weekend, face painting, encouraging people to bring their kids all dressed up to the market and we'll take autumnal photos of, of them in their costumes against the backdrop of the market. And, um, it's, it's always a party. <laughs> yeah, gotta that, visit that is for green sure. Market and see what's going on that week.
2: Cool. Well, Jean, thanks so much for the update. If you want to find out more on what's happening at the green market or learn something additional about their farmers or volunteer opportunities or just want to get a basic schedule of where to go and when, you can visit them at www.grownyc.org or follow them on Twitter and be sure to check in next Thursday as we bring you another update from the Grow NYC Green Market.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.